So, Lord, thank you that we're here. Just help us be attentive to what you want to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 3, if you'll turn there, we're going to continue in Jeremiah. We've been out of Jeremiah for about a month because of the holiday season and because of the prophecy updates the last couple weeks. But we want to pick it up in chapter 3 of the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, keep in mind, just by uh, kind of a quick way of review, Jeremiah is on the scene. He begins to prophesy. He's called, he's from a priestly family, but he's called to be a prophet. And he is one that, that comes on the scene about 640 B.C. It's about 60 years, 50 years after Isaiah was prophesying. His contemporary was Micah. And Isaiah was ministering to the house of Israel in the beginning of his ministry. And, uh, and he would begin in the year that King Uzziah died. And it would continue his ministry for 50 years till Manasseh, that king of Judah, had Isaiah sawn in half in about 690 B.C. So here comes, you know, 50 years later, Jeremiah. Keep in mind that the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, were taken off into uh, captivity in about 722 BC by the Assyrians. So here he is about over 80 years, between 80 and 90 years that Jeremiah is given this message. He's going to speak about Judah's sister Israel, and we're going to see why he does that. He addresses them. And then also we see that Jeremiah is interesting that he is prophesying during, as he begins his ministry, the reign of Josiah. Now, as you go to Second Chronicles, you go to Second Kings, Josiah was the last of the good kings of Judah before they went off into captivity. And it was later, as Josiah was uh, just a young boy when he came to the throne, um, in his 12th year, he began to make reforms. In the 18th year, I believe, if I'm correct, that they found a book of the law that was in the corner. He, he was cleaning up the temple because what had happened that his father Manasseh, his grandfather, had, was a terrible king and plunged the nation deep into idol worship for over 50 years. They were involved in every kind of uh, pagan worship, idol worship, occultic kinds of practices, uh, great immorality. So Manasseh, after he dies and Josiah comes on the throne, he begins to clean the temple out, all the trash, all the idols. And there in the corner, in, underneath a bunch of trash, they find the book of the law. And it is read, Elkiah uh, is reading it to Josiah. And he is, uh, you know, his heart is quickened and, and pierced by the word. And he tears his clothes and he calls for reforms. And he, he calls for the cleaning of the temple, the restoring of, of the temple worship and the sacrifices and Passover to be uh, celebrated once again. So Jeremiah is coming on the scene during that time. And what is interesting in chapter 2, if you remember a month ago as we went through it, he began to give a series of messages to the house of Judah. And he is using these metaphors uh, that you're likening to an unfaithful wife. You're, you're likening to these things that give them the truth of their spiritual condition. So that's going to continue that first message in the first five verses of chapter 3 of Jeremiah. So let's begin to read that. And then we're going to see the second message that he gives to them. But in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, this is a continuation of the first message that began in chapter 2. And we read, they say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not 
not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. And lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see where have you not lain with men. By the road you have sat for them like the Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Verse 3 Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. And will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. So this message would take place in the first years of Jeremiah's ministry, right before the book of the law was found in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And we see that um, there's two key words that we're going to see as we continue in chapters 3 and 4. And that is, one is return, and the other key word is backslidden. Now, again, he uses that analogy that he did in chapter 2. He said, you've committed spiritual adultery. Uh, as he refers uh, to that metaphor of marriage that he used in the first two verses of chapter 2. They had gone after other gods and committed great immorality. And, and they had set up the high places. Not only were they places of false worship, but they were places of, you know, where they committed great sexual immorality of every sort. So they went after those false gods and they gave themselves wholeheartedly to them. And so the Lord is calling them back. Um, and whenever that a man or a woman turns away from the true and living God, here's something to remember, that they will always turn to something else or something else to fulfill their desires, their pleasures, and their wants. And here the Lord is saying, turn back to me. He calls us to himself for us to surrender to him wholeheartedly. And in those times that we go after other things, and it's easy to do that, the pleasures of the world are all around us, and the things of the world, and the cares of life. Keep in mind, his love remains, and his love remains here, and that's amazing to me. Because he is always faithful. His love is always faithful. He cannot deny himself. And we see that, that as we read this, that there's in verse 3, the showers have been withheld. We see that God caused the rains to stop, that they might cry out to him. In that covenant that he made with them, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he said, if you go after other gods then this is what's going to happen. The, the crops are not going to grow. The rain's going to stop. The locusts are going to come. And, and he would say, you're going to be defeated by your enemies and eventually go off into captivity. So here he says the rains have stopped and it, it would have been a sign for them to repent and return to the Lord, but they didn't. They continued to those, you know, give themselves to the false gods. That could not help them. And they refuse to be ashamed, and yet it's God's desire that they can, would come back to him. And that's his desire for us. It is always to come back, repent, and turn to me. So here, as we continue, now Jeremiah gives his second message to the nation, beginning in verse 6. And the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel, as that word backsliding, has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. So Israel, speaking of the ten northern tribes up north, 
They played the harlot. They went into idol worship big time. I believe that as they uh, split off from Rehoboam, uh, the nation split under his reign, the son of Solomon. And their first king was Jeroboam. The house of Israel had 19 kings, and all of them were terrible kings. None of them were believers. They were idol worshipers. It went from bad to worse. And they eventually went off into captivity, as I said, in 722 B.C., taken off by the Assyrians. And here we're going to see that God has given a warning for Judah because they're going down the same path. And as we continue in verse 7, and I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. Uh, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister uh, Judah saw it. So Israel did wickedly, and you, Judah, and he makes the analogy of, of your sister, Judah, you saw that. And I called on them to return to me, and they refused, and you saw what happened. They went off into captivity, and the Assyrians were very brutal. Matter of fact, they would torture people when they went and take over a city. They would put fish hooks in their mouths and drag them off into captivity barefoot. You saw what happened to Israel. You should have known the warning that was given to them. So he continues to indict uh, Judah in this, in, in this call to repentance. And then I saw that for all causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister, verse 10, Judah, had not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. After God's long suffering and patience, came to an end, and God had sent the prophets, Elijah, to the house of Israel and others. They refused to repent. They went deep into idol worship, and, and, and all of a sudden they found themselves going into captivity. And Judah should have feared the Lord, but they didn't. And now they're going down the same path. Isn't it amazing and I think all of us in our lives that we've seen people that they pursued worldly pleasures or sin or carnality and they've experienced terrible consequences because of it. And we see it and, and it's, it's hard to watch and it's difficult, the consequences that they're going through. But yet it's amazing how you can see somebody go through that and yet you can think, well, I'm going to do the same thing and forget about the consequences that they went through or think that I'm an exception to that, that nothing really is going to happen to me. And that is a big deception because in Galatians, Paul writes, don't be deceived. God will not mock, be mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And that is a spiritual law for every single one of us. If we sow seeds of the flesh, of the flesh you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit of the spirit, you're going to reap to everlasting life. That is true for every man and every woman. And if we're ones that we're going to say, you know, I'm going to play around with sin and carnality and worldly pleasure, then there's going to be consequences. And it's going to be bad news and it's going to be hard and the enemy is very good about deceiving us, thinking nothing will happen. You'll have pleasure. Everything will be okay. You know, go ahead and do it. Nobody needs to know. You know, nobody cares. 
Sometimes people even think that when they do it for a while and nothing happens that God doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really care. Or, you know, some people even think that God approves of it. I've had people sit in my office once in a while. It doesn't happen a lot that I'm involved in the sin or I'm going to pursue this relationship and, it, and it's sin. It's adultery. It's fornication, whatever the case may be. So here's an important message. Judah, you saw what happened to your sister Israel. You saw how they went into captivity. You should have learned from that, but you didn't. And it's interesting that, that here in verse 10, note this, that he says that Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. What is that word pretense? It means to pretend. They were going through reforms at this time during the reign of Josiah. Josiah is going to call for the reforms for Passover, and, and yet you haven't returned to me with your whole heart. You've done it in pretense. You have maybe some religious activity that's going on, but you don't really have a heart after me. And we're going to see that as this message continues, that Jeremiah is going to give the message to the Lord that you need to break up the fallow ground of your heart. You need to circumcise your heart. It's about the heart. It isn't about the external religiousness. And you should have learned the lessons. And, you know, the Bible is very honest about the stories that we read. And sometimes you read the Bible and it's messy, isn't it? But God is honest to record it for our admonition. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. The Old Testament examples are given to us as an admonition so we can learn. We can learn what happens if we pursue sin or walk in disobedience. And it's a loving father that says, I don't want you to get hurt or be in bondage. So live for me and call upon me and have a heart for me. Have a heart have a heart for me. Turn to me wholeheartedly. You guys have only done it in pretense, says the Lord. Sometimes I do talk to people. Maybe you do as well. They want reforms in their lives. Oh, I'll go to church and, and learn some religion. And it'll help me and it'll help my kids. But it ends up being superficial. And there's no true giving their hearts to the Lord. And always remember this, that our Christianity... It's not about religion. It's not about reforms. It's about relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we truly give our hearts to him, then we're born again by the Spirit of God, and there's transformation. There's power in the gospel to save a man or woman who has come in faith to him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul writes, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And there's power in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts to enable us to live for him. But there is a decision for us to make, to yield to him, to look to him, to have a heart for him, to learn of him, to know him. That's my prayer for me and for you, that we would continue to do that in this year and encourage others. And in verse 11, then the Lord said to me, uh, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Isn't that interesting? What do you think that the Lord was saying? That Israel showed herself more righteous than Judah. Well, I think that the Lord is saying this to Judah because Israel didn't try to cover up her sin with a cloak of trying to look righteous. Man, their hearts were far from him and they went full out in disobedience. 
But Judah, you have this pretense. You're trying to be religious. You got a little bit of, you know, Judaism and a lot of paganism and all of this that's mixed together. Your hearts aren't right with me. Remember that Jesus wrote that letter to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, the last church, seven letters to the seven churches. The seven churches, the church of Laodicea. And Laodicea was the wealthy church. Uh, you think you have need of nothing, that you're rich and, and you're clothed and, and, and you say you have need of nothing, but you don't know that you're poor and blind and naked and wretched and miserable is what the Lord said to them. And I know your works, that you're neither hot or cold. And I wish that you were either cold or hot because uh, you are lukewarm. I'm about ready to vomit you out of my mouth. They seem like they had it together. They seem like, you know, it would be a church you go to and go, wow, look at all this. But the Lord says that you have a lukewarmness. You're neither hot or cold. You don't have a heart for me. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and fellowship with him and him with me. And we use that verse there in Revelation chapter 3 in evangelistic messages. And it's a good verse to use. But it's also for us as well. That the Lord says, I continually knock at the door of your heart. And if you just open up the door, then I will come in. And I'll fellowship with you, sup with you, dine with you. And of course, dining in the ancient time was a, was a powerful, symbolic gesture of fellowship. As you ate of the same bread and broke, broke it and, and ate of it, it meant a oneness. And Jesus is saying, I'll come in and sup with you, fellowship with you. So can I ask us a question? Are you hearing the knocking of the Lord on your heart, the door of your heart? And maybe it's because we've been so busy. Here we are two weeks into the new year, and it's like, oh, I wanted to read my Bible, you know, every day, and I've read it once. Or I was going to be committed to, to praying or be committed to devotions or whatever the case may be. That the Lord continues to knock on the door of your heart, of my heart. He wants fellowship with us. He wants us to have a heart for him, to know him. To continue to walk with him. So this is the message that he's trying to get through to Judah. And it's a message for us. So verse 12. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say return backsliding. There's that word again. Israel says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you. For I am merciful says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. That you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You have scattered your charms and alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Uh, calling Israel back to him, even though they had, uh, you know, been taken into captivity. But return, O backsliding children, says the Lord in verse 14. And for I am married to you, I will... Take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and with understanding. I love verse 15. Because that's the ministry that he's given to me. And as we're going to see that there's going to be a few verses here as Jeremiah is going to be speaking about the kingdom age here. He says the time's going to come when... I'm going to give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. 
And that's the ministry that the Lord has called me to and being a pastor teacher to feed you not with hype, not with entertainment, not with a lot of stories, not in trying to be culturally relevant or whatever, but to feed you with knowledge and with understanding of the word of God. And doesn't it remind you this verse here that uh, as we read that Paul's encouraging Timothy that you be diligent to present yourself approve a worker who need not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. And as we went through 2 Timothy chapter 2 and covered that verse, you see the apostles talking to Timothy and he's talking more than just book learning. But he's saying, Timothy, that, that you need to be one that you are, you know, you're living this. The doctrine that you need to be a, a vessel of honor as he go through the chapter. He says that you are to flee useful lusts and pursue, you know, righteousness, peace and love in the Holy Spirit. You're to pursue something. You're to live what it is that you're teaching. Have a heart for me. And so here Jeremiah says that I'm going to raise up shepherds that have a heart after me. And that's what I pray, Lord, that I don't want to just be academic. I want to have a heart for you, to live for you, to be a vessel of honor, to be one that is the same man behind the pulpit as out of the pulpit. And I know that none of us are perfect, but that's important for you as parents as well, as grandparents, to your children. That we don't just, as we discussed on Sunday, and I know Sunday was a little heavy, and I hope it was an encouragement to you. But Paul says, Timothy, you know my doctrine. You know my manner of life. Timothy, you be an example to the believers in word and conduct and, and in faith and love and purity. Timothy, let's strive together in godliness. And so these present imperatives to Timothy, it isn't just about book learning. Yes, there's doctrine, but you believe what it is that you're teaching and you're living it. Paul says to the Corinthians, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I think I wouldn't dare say that. But Paul isn't saying I'm equal with Christ. He's saying that I live what it is that I am teaching. And we need to be that example to others because here's the thing. If we are saying, I'm a Christian and we're living like the world, people are going to say, well, that's a big joke. Why should I become a Christian? I've had people talk to me saying, I'm not a Christian. Why should I be a Christian? Because I worked with this guy. He said he was a Christian and he went out partying with us and he acted this way and he had a foul mouth and all this. Why should I become a Christian? So the gospel is something that we speak but it's also something that we live. Amen? So this is something that may our kids see that we have a heart for the Lord. Uh, may, you know, those who are linked to us in our lives, wherever that might be, a neighbor or a family member or a friend or a co-worker, see that we have a heart for the Lord. And then we have opportunity to give them truth. I'm going to raise up these shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And then as he begins to talk more about the, the kingdom age, verse 16, then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increase in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall 
it be made any more interesting verse. Um, and speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, now here's the thing. Most of us know what the Ark of the Covenant was. The book of Exodus, Moses was told to, to make the Ark of the Covenant. Was was a box about three feet long, two feet wide, made of a K of wood, lined with gold, and then it had a lid on top of it called the mercy seat with two cherubim of pure gold. And it was placed in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. And then the high priest would go behind the veil. There was the first room in the tabernacle. And that was the holy place or the outer sanctuary. And then only the high priest was allowed to go behind the veil to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Lord said, I will meet my people there between the cherubim. And it represented the tangible presence of the Lord. And it was an awesome thing. And the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to make atonement for the nation. It's interesting that we see the Ark of the Covenant mentioned throughout the Old Testament. It was mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the, at the end of the days of the judges, uh, as the children of Israel went to war against the Philistines, they were defeated. And all of a sudden, somebody came up with this bright idea. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go get it, and it will save us. Not the Lord will save us, but it will save us. So they got the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant comes out. And then all of a sudden, the Philistines captured it and took it to their pagan gods, put it in the temple of Dagon. Dagon falls over, you know, as they come in, and, and, and it's fallen over. They push it back up. And then the next day, Dagon was fallen over as it was next to the Ark of the Covenant. And, and Dagon was their fish god that they worshipped. And they said, hmm, something's fishy going on here. So all of a sudden, everybody started getting struck with tumors, and, and they got rid of it and don't have time to go into it all. But you can read those chapters, 4, 5, 6, into chapter 7 of, of 1 Samuel, and they would send the Ark of the Covenant off. But it was a powerful thing. The Ark of the Covenant would end up being placed into Solomon's temple, the first temple. But what is interesting is, is that... Josiah here, as we talk about him, when he was making these reforms, that he asked for the Ark of the Covenant to be placed back into the Holy of Holies, that the Levites wouldn't carry it or have it be a burden on their shoulders any longer. Of course, we know from the book of Numbers that only the Levites were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't mean to bore you with a lot of Old Testament history and instructions given to them, but what is fascinating is, is that if Josiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 35 asked the Ark of the Covenant, which was the most revered furnishing there in the, the temple, to be placed back in it, it means that it was taken out. And it was probably taken out during the days of Manasseh that he just filled the temple full of idols. And, and um, they have found, archaeologists have found that to be true. Idols everywhere took the Ark of the Covenant out. Where did it go? We don't know. There's one theory. There's one um, explorer and one ministry that really is based out of Colorado Springs that they have a theory that it ended up going to an island in Egypt on the Nile River. And there's some evidence that a group of Jews during the time of Manasseh, that they went to that island. They built a replica of the temple because the temple in Jerusalem was corrupt. Manasseh had corrupted it, defiled it. And so the Ark of the Covenant went then 
there, and then it ended up somehow in Ethiopia. And perhaps you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant being in this one place, there's a guardian, where they claim they have the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some say that the Ark of the Covenant ended up in Ethiopia during Solomon's time when the Queen of Sheba came and he gave her all her desire. And so the, the story goes that she asked, even though it's not in the Bible, for the Ark of the Covenant and it ended up going to Ethiopia. I don't think that Solomon would have done that. So I don't think that that theory has a lot of weight. But there are some that believe that perhaps because they found evidence, archaeologists, of a temple and a picture of the Ark of the Covenant or a drawing of it, and they think maybe the Ark of the Covenant ended there, and then it ended up in Ethiopia. So what happened to it? Because the last mention of the Ark of the Covenant is in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. It is also interesting that shortly after, Josiah says, bring it back in. I don't think that it ended up in Ethiopia. That's my opinion. That's, I'm as wrong as everybody else, okay? But I've done a little bit of reading on it. And the reason is, is because the theory is, is that they took it during the days of Manasseh over to Egypt. It ended up in Ethiopia. Well, then why did Josiah ask for it to be put back into the Holy of Holies? A few years later, here comes Nebuchadnezzar. He takes the furnishings out of the vessels and those things that were sanctified out of the temple in Jerusalem, takes them back to Babylon. There's no mention of it because when you see that they come back to rebuild the second temple, there is a list of those furnishings that came back in, in the book of Ezra. And as you go down that list, and even as Daniel also gives some of those, those listings of those furnishings, that there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. There's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant being in the second temple. There's also, I believe, a reference from Titus when he came and destroyed the second temple in 70 AD. This is just free information, okay? <laughs> that the Holy of Holies was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant. So what happened to it? Well, Hollywood made a movie, Indiana Jones and, and the Lost Ark, <laughs> so we know what happened to it, but... We don't know what happened to it, but here's the interesting thing. That when you go to Israel today, we know that there's going to be a tribulation temple, isn't there? And so the question is, is the Ark of the Covenant going to be in the Holy of Holies? You can go to a place that is called the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute is a group of Jews that have made all the furnishings ready to go for when the temples be rebuilt. The breastplate of the high priest, the garments of the priest all the, the you know, furnishings. You can go in the old city of Jerusalem. We showed you a picture of the seven-branch menorah and all of that. You can go through there. You can see all the things they've done, the trumpets, everything. They're training young men for sacrifices. And I've always said this, that when you read the book of, of Ezra, when Zerubbabel came back, when Cyrus gave the decree, to rebuild the temple. They come back, they push all the, the rubble aside. What was the first thing that they did before they laid the foundation of the temple? They built an altar there for sacrifice so they could do the sacrifices. So they could, and don't be surprised, and I've said this, 
that they could make an altar to do the sacrifices even before they build the temple or finish the temple when the third temple or the tribulation temple is built. Just a thought. It was interesting. When we went to the Temple Institute and they were giving their spiel, they said, yeah, we're all ready to do sacrifices. All we have to do is build an altar. We can do that before the temple is built. We know that the Antichrist, who's going to make a covenant with Israel for one week, is going to enable them to rebuild the temple. So what's going to go into the Holy of Holies? Now, here's where it gets interesting. That when Israel took over Jerusalem in the Six-Day War, that it was the first time that they had sovereignly ruled over East Jerusalem since before Nebuchadnezzar came in in Babylon in 605 B.C., 2,600 years. Absolute miracle. And the story goes by some that they began for a short time, they had the Israeli flag flying over the Temple Mount where Solomon's temple was. It's where the Dome of the Rock was and still is. And eventually, Moshe Dayan, the general, would pass it on to the Muslims for them to administrate it. But during that transition time that some of the Jews began to dig under the Temple Mount area, and there is a rabbi who claims that they dug, and they found a chamber, and they found a furnishing that was covered with animal skins, and they claimed to be the Ark of the Covenant. So what is interesting is when you go through the Bible or the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they will come out and say, we know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And I asked the lady, I said, you said you claim to know where the Ark of the Covenant. She said, yeah, we'll bring it out when we need to. So will the Ark of the Covenant be in the third temple? I don't think it necessarily will be, and I'll tell you why. And again, I'm as wrong as anybody else. What is going to go in the Holy of Holies? Put on your thinking caps. We just went over 11 months of the book of tribulation. He's going to set up an image of himself, right? He's going to set up an image of himself, and he's going to proclaim himself as God. So it's interesting as we consider those things. And here Jeremiah is saying the Ark of the Covenant is going to be no more. It's not going to be made. It's not going to be spoken of. And it speaks of the tangible presence of God. I want to end with this, and then we'll go to prayer. Boy, you know, I was expecting to get through chapter 4 tonight. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, there was so much talk about it. There can be talk about it even today, but it represented the tangible presence of God. And you remember when Jesus died on the cross, that he cried out, It is finished. And then Matthew records that the veil in the temple rent in half and came collapsing down. And all of a sudden, the priests, who were not allowed to go behind that veil, where the tangible presence of God was, all of a sudden, they were looking into the Holy of Holies. And it was like the Lord was saying, I've made a way for you now to come. It's open house. And the writer of Hebrews now comes along and says that we can have confidence 
and coming into the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And to the Hebrew mind reading that, or if Aaron the high priest was reading that, they would say, wow, that is amazing. You as Christians, because of Jesus dying on the cross, that you can come into the Holy of Holies with confidence. And you can come in any time you want. You can stay as long as you want. And you can do it as many times as you want. Not just once a year for a short time like the Old Testament high priest. But we have the privilege and opportunity to come into the presence of the Lord, to the throne of grace in time of need, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 10, but to come and spend time with him. Do we understand the, the wonderful opportunity that we have to come and and have fellowship with the true and living God, the creator of all things, all-powerful, all-knowing God, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. May that never lose its impact. May it never lose the importance in our hearts. And here's the thing. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to spend time with you. So maybe, perhaps tonight... He's knocking on the door of your heart. You know, there's a famous picture. If you go to any Christian bookstore or something, has a picture with that, that verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, you know, opens the door and lets me in, I'll come in and sup with him. And Jesus is at a cottage and, and he's knocking. There's no, there's no door handle. The handle's on the inside. You're the one that's going to have to open it. He's knocking. And in the Greek is, I continually knock, and I desire to come in in fellowship with you. And we can do it with confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I thank you. I thank you that, Lord, as we talk about these things and kind of tie them all together, may it touch our hearts, the privilege that we have to be able to, to know that, that you have provided for us. We, it's, it's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that has enabled us to be able to come and, and have fellowship with you. And we can do it any time that we want to. Stay as long as we want. As many times as we want. Father, maybe perhaps you're knocking on the door of somebody that's here or listening to this message or later on the radio but they've never opened their heart to you, period. And they need salvation and forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. And even as we've seen that the message here is to come, that the message is to come for anyone here this, tonight. First of all, to come to salvation if you've never done that. To know that Jesus went to a cross and died for you. And then when he cried out, it is finished, the veil did come down that was in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And he was declaring that you can come now and be forgiven and have relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life, and come into his presence and know him and walk with him and have the spirit of adoption where you can cry out, Abba, Father as you come in faith and ask for forgiveness and realize you need to be forgiven 
and turn to him for salvation. He is your salvation. There is none other. He did the work on the cross. And that we would understand, even as I was talking to somebody yesterday, that our salvation is not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what you did, Lord, on the cross. It's based on what he did. He did the work. He rose from the grave. And now he gives us a living hope through the resurrection. And the invitation is to come and call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Jesus for forgiveness. Give your life to him. He loves you. This world will deceive you and will bring death to you and discouragement. And this world is a scam. This world is not your hope. Jesus is your hope. To help you live a life in this world that has real purpose. Being born again by the Spirit of God. Knowing him. What a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Will you come to him for salvation? You can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come and ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you're alive, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me in this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. And I do want to know you and walk with you. Maybe you're here tonight and the Lord's been knocking on your heart. And he desires for you to draw close to him and have fellowship with him, to know him. To have a heart after him and to be able to minister to your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, nieces and friends and co-workers and neighbors. To feed them with knowledge and truth out of a heart of love that they see the reality of the Lord in you. That they see the light of Jesus Christ coming from you. That we wouldn't get caught up in the things of the world where it just begins to choke out the word of God. Begins to strangle our spiritual lives. Lord, help us. to keep you the priority every day. spend that time with you because you love us so much and we have the privilege to be able to cry out Abba Father as a son a daughter of the living God so Lord I thank you for tonight I pray that we would walk out of here with great joy because of your goodness and faithfulness and Lord that you desire to use us you desire to use us where you have us planted, opportunities you give to us. We're here for such a time as this. So I thank you, Lord. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. God is good, isn't he?